Welcome to Trek Tuesday, with interviews from every Star Trek generation. Hi, this is Tony Tolado on this edition of Sci-Fi Talk, a vintage conversation with author Alan Dean Foster. I had the chance to catch up to him at Icon. He talked about his various projects and short stories, novels, and also writing novel adaptations as the original Star Wars, A New Hope, and also the film Alien. Here's my conversation with Alan Dean Foster. You were actually um, born in New York, but you moved out to Los Angeles. Was there, was there a reason why your family moved out west? Or? Two reasons. My father wanted to get away from his mother-in-law, and I had a lot of health problems when I was very young. I uh, had eye problems and I had breathing problems. The doctor told my parents they thought a drier, less humid climate would probably be better for me, and that all precipitated the move to the Los Angeles area, which in those days was a nice place to move to if you had health problems, but uh, no longer is, obviously. We'll throw a name at you and see what significance. The Arkham Collector, does that uh, ring anything special to you? I had written about 13 short stories, all of which had been rejected. This was uh, when I was just out. Well, I was a graduate student at UCLA and then just when I got out. Uh, like I said, none of them sold. And then just for fun, I had just discovered H.P. Lovecraft and I wrote a long letter to August Derleth, uh, who I, a gentleman I had read about uh, in the Lovecraftian fashion and got an interesting letter back from him saying, Dear Mr. Foster, I'd like to buy your story for my semi-annual magazine, The Arkham Collector. Would $35 be acceptable? And I go around frantically scrabbling through my typewritten manuscripts looking for the story that I had supposedly sent August Derleth, found out it was the letter, and that was my first sale. And it was a very valuable lesson to get at the beginning of my career, which is instead of trying to write to a market or to write to imitate a favorite writer, just write what you like to write. Write for yourself, and, and sooner or later, if it's good, somebody will buy it, and you'll be a lot happier with the result anyway. What made you decide to write? I'd always been a very facile writer. Writing had always been very easy for me. My senior year at UCLA, I was getting ready to go to USC Law School. My senior year at UCLA, I discovered the film department. I needed a certain number of units to graduate, but no particular classes. And I found out that they would give you credit for watching movies. You'd go in and watch the history of the American film. You'd watch Charlie Chaplin for six hours a week and get four units. It's a great racket. While I was doing that, I took some writing courses simply because it's something I'd always been good at. I did well, my teachers encouraged me, and I thought I would take a shot at some, some prose. I was writing screenplays and teleplays in the UCLA film department. And I sold a couple of short stories, and I thought, gee, this is fun, let's pursue this and see what happens. Sci-Fi Talk continues, so stay tuned. You've done a lot of novelizations of, uh, of films and things like that. Um, you know, Alien comes to mind. Uh, I believe uh, some of the Star Wars, uh, uh, also did, you also did an original Star Wars story called Splinter in the Mind's Eye. Uh, what was the process of, of, of that working with like established characters and trying to uh, sort of fit to the, the constraints that Gay give you as opposed to creating your own character? It was, it was fun. I had no problem. I think when you, if you love reading, or you love movies, uh, when you go to movies or you read books, you always tend to add things that you'd like to see, whether it's more of a favorite character or uh, a background that's not developed too well in the story, and so you kind of invent it for yourself. Uh, that's what you do essentially when you're doing a tie-in or a novelization. Uh, George Lucas, for whom I did the book version of Star Wars and the sequel, Splinter of the Mind's Eye, uh, was very it, the easiest person in the world to work with. He said, I, I want a sequel book, use these characters, go write the book. He made two small changes in the finished manuscript, and that was it. Uh, I was left alone to do it, and uh, uh, there was only one stricture that was put on me in writing the book. At the time that I wrote Splinter, Star Wars had not yet been released. 
No one knew, as no one does, if the film would be successful or moderately successful or a flop. So George, who always thinks ahead, wanted to be able, in the event that the film was a moderate success, to be able to make a sequel film, if necessary, utilizing a lot of the material, props, backgrounds, and so forth, from the first film. So I was enjoined from doing things like large-scale space battles in the book, for example, and I had to write the book with the idea in mind that it might be filmed someday on a low budget, which is why it all takes place on a fog-shrouded planet, for example, that eliminates the need for expensive backgrounds. It was an interesting way to approach the book, so it has a little more of an intimate feel than it might have had otherwise. Most authors, when they write something, their budget doesn't really come into it. But with something like this, it was almost like writing a, a novel um, to be a film, and you know, you have, you're writing to a budget as opposed to having your imagination totally turned loose. That's right. Uh, there, there was that restriction on it, uh, but that's all right. It didn't bother me. It was, it was fun to do it that way. I always thought it would have made a really nice movie for TV. And we, were, we were hoping that that was was going to be the uh, the Star Wars sequel before you know Empire you know came fleshed out. But yeah, it was uh, it received a lot of attention at the time and did very well for you. You know, I was very happy with the book. Sure, it would have been nice to see it as a movie, but George, you know, he was able to do whatever he wanted and he did what he wanted and he should it's, it's his story it's his universe uh, one interesting sidelight about that the cover to splinter the mind's eye if you'll notice uh, among the other things that had not been locked down was the right to use the likenesses of Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill so you will note that the characters of Princess Leia and, and Luke are seen from behind so that you don't have to see their faces so I was not the only one who had restrictions I had restrictions put on how I could do the story and obviously Ralph McQuarrie who did the cover had certain restrictions he had to hew to in doing Doing the cover painting. The novel, too, and I think what makes such a great collectible is the fact that Macquarie did the cover, uh, which I don't believe he did too many of them. I think that's the only one he's ever done. He did do the original cover for the first printing of the paperback of Star Wars, mm -hmm. which is actually a piece of the original, what was going to be original, I believe, advertising art. Mm -hmm. uh, it was at least a conceptual painting anyway. And when the movie came out, they went to a 20th Century Fox, more publicity-oriented, more movie-oriented uh, cover for the book for all the subsequent printings. But that original one is, is really kind of fun to see. Ralph's a great painter, you know, oh, yeah. and, and his stuff is, is, is marvelous to see. Absolutely. Out of all the novelizations you've done, do you have a favorite? I'm very partial to, to Alien. It was written under difficult personal circumstances. And it was a very intense piece of writing. It had to be done very quickly. And I really did nothing else but live that book for a number of weeks. And because it is such a dark piece, uh, it, it, was, it was a very intense, uh, very intense time for me. But I'm very proud of the way it turned out. Uh, I have a, a soft spot in my heart for Dark Star, which is a very early novelization because it was so difficult. It's basically about four guys sitting around in a spaceship talking about how bored they are. <laughs> or three guys and one dead guy. But <laughs> that was hard to get a novel out of. You must have been uh, proud of, uh, you know, 1991, uh, I think the Southwest Writers Award for Cyberway, is that correct? Um, how, how did the idea of Cyberway come to you? I live in Arizona. And the Navajo Nation is the largest Indian tribe in the United States, and I live reasonably close to that area. I'd always been fascinated by the technical aspects of Navajo handicrafts, both the jewelry, the silverwork, and the wonderful rugs. And the, they almost look like they're machine-made, but it's all handicrafts. 
And that led to the idea of, well, what if they had an origin that was not handicraft-oriented but was technically oriented? And that led to the idea of aliens having contact with the predecessors, the, the Anasazi, the predecessors of, of the Navajos, and that tied into several other things. And that's how a book comes about. But basically, I wanted to do a book which involved Navajo culture, and I wanted it to be positive. There's so much negative stuff written uh, about life on uh, Native American reservations uh, and I wanted to do something positive particularly for any young people who might read the book you tread on very uh, unsteady ground when you do that people are very protective of and very guarded about their traditions but if you throw all your traditions out in your art that people buy and people see you really can't have any um, if it's treated with dignity and respect you can't have any argument with somebody else using them anything that's uh, got brewing it, it said in the program you have some film and writing projects coming up you care to mention something well Dinotopia Lost which is a novel set in Jim Gurney's world of Dinotopia it's just issued by Turner I have two books coming out uh, later this year or early next year one is called Jed the Dead which is a humorous science fiction novel which, from uh, Ace which deals with a dead alien and a live Texan <laughs> and the other is the other is called The Howling Stones which is a novel from Del Rey in my uh, Humanx Commonwealth series oh, right now I'm working on a parallel world novel called Parallelities contemporary parallel world novel and I just finished a novel called The Last Paradise which is not science fiction or fantasy but is a contemporary adventure novel set in present day New Guinea where I was last October and November and which is quite a fascinating place Sci-Fi Talk returns in a moment I had actually read that you had lived uh, in Polynesia, is that correct, for a while? What was, what was that like, and wh why did you do it? You know, the romantic soul of the romantic traveler, I guess. The first place I wanted to go when I got out of, when I had the wherewithal to do so, or even if I didn't have the wherewithal to do so, when I got out of college, was the South Pacific. And in the South Pacific, it was Tahiti. And I, I ended up, I learned some of the language, I studied the dance, and then I went. And I went with a backpack, and I kind of fell in, was sort of temporarily adopted by this very well-off Tahitian family, and ended up spending, living most of the summer with them, in between times gallivanting around to some of the outer islands like Bora Bora and Kuahine. And uh, it, it was a great time. Uh, one of the things I learned very early on is if you travel, if you will attempt to learn a little bit of the language wherever you go, the local language, not the language of commerce, which is usually English, but the local language, uh, the people will will treat you extremely well for two reasons. First of all, they're flattered that you take the time to try to learn their language. Second of all, you're usually so bad at it that they feel immediately sympathetic towards you. But the dominant language in French Polynesia is French. But the language of the people is Tahitian, and to see an old Tahitian, to see their face when you said two words to them in Tahitian instead of English or French was really something to see. Does that help as a writer to travel a lot and see a lot of the world, uh, especially when you're writing about worlds that don't exist anywhere except in your mind? Uh, I was astonished when I first started going to science fiction conventions and meeting the authors that I'd read all my life, how insular most of them were. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them, their, their idea of traveling was to go, for, go to New York and meet publishers. And I really didn't meet anybody who actually, I, I met some people like Frederick Pohl and Charlie Brown of Locust, who would go to places like, um, would travel to Europe or would travel, uh, you know, even to Peru to see something like Machu Picchu. But most of them, the great majority, didn't go anyplace. And none of them would do things like, uh, you know, whitewater rafting in Africa or poking around in the, in the real rainforest in a tent or anything like that. I love to do that sort of thing. I would rather be Indiana Jones than write Indiana Jones. 
but most of the blank places on the map, as Akon and Doyle said, have been filled in, and it's difficult to find places like that anymore. But all of it ends up in my writing, sooner or later. Every place I go, everybody I meet. For example, the Tahitian policeman, who became a very good friend of mine while I was in Tahiti. Uh, That was in 1973. Many years went by. I wrote a book called Catch-A-Lot, and he is uh, one of the major characters, or at least forms the basis for one of the major characters in the book. Out of everything you've ever written, what's your favorite? Well, that's a hard question to ask any writer or any artist. They're usually very bad judges of their own work. But I'm particularly fond of my short stories. I'm very proud of a book that came out from Warner last year called Montezuma Strip, which deals with the development of an emerging culture in the near future along the U.S.-Mexican border, which you can go down there and see emerging. It's not a figment of imagination. It's all based around the the development and the deployment of these maquiladora assembly plants, which are drawing people from all over Mexico and Central America. There's a whole new culture developing down there. And my other short fiction as well. Uh, Among my novels, uh, I would have to say Maori, which is a historical novel. It was marketed as fantasy, but it's a historical novel. Uh, Cyberway, certainly. And the two books which deal with a place called Midworld, which is my jungle book, both written 22 years apart. Midworld and Midflinks, which just came out last year from Del Rey. Is that a problem, having the large gap, or was it like stepping in again like as if no time had passed at all well some time had passed 22 years time passes but uh, it's it's strange at least for me the places that I that I go in my imagination are always there you have to go back and pick up on the details so that you don't contradict yourself but the the basics of it are always still there and I seem to be able to uh, call them forth whenever necessary you also did uh novelizations for the uh, Star Trek animated series, if I recall. And uh, I have probably credit you as one of the people that when there wasn't anything new on Star Trek because of these novelizations, this is all we had to read or to see. So it was very important in sort of keeping the uh, the faith on that. And then you actually wrote the um, the treatment for Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, how, how did that come about? And I also did seven Star Trek scripts for Talking Records. Oh, There's a company know. called Power Records that issued two Star Trek records. Uh, and there were three or four stories on each one of them, original scripts with sound effects and, and real Star Trek, but no names were given. They didn't credit names for many years. I think I had one of those. Okay. And, is, and I, I'm very proud of those little scripts. They were written a long time ago, but they're Star Trek scripts. They may be only 15 minutes long apiece, but they are Star Trek nonetheless. The novelizations of the animated series came about because Ballantine Books bought the rights to do book versions of them. I had already done a couple of novels for them, a terrible film called Luana and a much better film called Dark Star. Mm -hmm. And the assignment was given to me. And the treatment for the Star Trek movie came about because Gene Roddenberry had seen the Star Trek logs. Oh, there you go. Interestingly enough, and liked them and was familiar, you know, figured that I knew the Star Trek universe and could work in it. And I was brought in along with a lot of other writers to submit ideas for a proposed revival of the TV series. And instead they decided to do a movie and my story was picked and that's how that came about. After, as many people have probably already read in numerous histories of Star Trek, after the project became a big budget film, I, having no pull whatsoever in Hollywood, became an instant non-person. 
and it was a very unhappy experience for me. But the first five minutes of the movie is all mine, and after that they changed everything around. And I was not asked to contribute, so I can take neither credit nor uh, nor damnation for whatever follows after the first five minutes. To uh, your credit, what you told me earlier was uh, that you had just been given a, essentially a one-page or a two-page outline. Uh, for a story idea, and essentially the rest is all Alan Dean Foster. Do you think we would ever see uh, a version of that anywhere in print someday? My treatment was titled In Thy Image, and I would have no objection to having somebody reprint it. I mean, at this point, it wouldn't be for any sort of, of obscure literary value. It would be a, practically a historical document, but that would be something that would have to be discussed with the powers that be at... Uh, at Paramount. Of course, there were many things different at the time. Leonard Nimoy had not signed on for the film, so there was a half-human, half-Vulcan character, more or less, to take his place, much younger named Zahn. Um, and uh, there were a number of other things that had to be different that were changed radically for many reasons. But if somebody wanted to see it reprinted in a Star Trek fanzine or, or a book or something like that, I certainly have no objections to it. It's an old piece of work. But uh, it might be, I'm, I would probably be a lot of fun for people to see, but that's entirely up to Paramount. To see the movie that could have been, as opposed to what is. Well, it's not entirely the movie that could have been, because it's just a treatment. It's not a finished screenplay. But, uh, it, you know, people would have, would have fun looking at it. You'd see, you'd see the genesis of what might have been, perhaps. Uh, personally, is there anything that uh, that excites you right now uh, that you see or read out there in science fiction? Well, my eyes have gotten very bad for reading. It's very difficult for me to read more than ten pages at a time, and I have to put it down. Most of my reading, therefore, is confined to nonfiction. I read a lot of magazines. I read a lot of natural science, history, biography, that sort of thing, which is much easier to read in segments than a novel is. A novel, you want to pick it up and read it. Sure. But uh, so I really can't read uh, much science fiction. But I, I love Esther Friesner's stuff. And I think Greg Egan is a very interesting writer. Uh, it's just it's, it's hard for me to find the time to, uh, to sit down and, and go through a book anymore, which is sad, but, uh, you know, ashes to ashes and all that. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm Alan Dean Foster, and you're listening to Sci-Fi Talk.